Blog Talk Radio. In 1992, the Food and Drug Administration decided that genetically modified organisms were the functional equivalent of conventional foods. They arrived at this decision without testing GMOs for allergenicity, toxicity, antibiotic resistance, and functional characteristics. The aim of the feed industry is a trillion dollars of profits from royalties every year. And the aim is no farmer should have access to their own seed. The aim is every farmer should be forced into the market every year. All across our country, our people are becoming more and more conscious about the food that they are eating and the food that they are serving to their kids. And this is certainly true for genetically engineered food. Americans have a right to know if their food is genetically engineered. Hello and welcome to Mad Science, the Genetic Crossroad. I am your host, Anna Kavanaugh, and I want to thank you for joining me for the broadcast tonight. On tonight's broadcast, I thought I'd take our discussion in a bit of a different direction on the whole subject of the GM industry by looking at parallels with other phenomena in society. And when I say parallels, I mean messages and examples we see in art forms that seem to prophesize a future that came to pass, such as in literature and motion pictures, or parallels with some of the other major crises of our time, like global warming, planetary compromise, and environmental and health disasters. What caused these? What are the outcomes? And how have we dealt with them as a society? What have we learned, and how might they be able to help protect our future? And there's some really important questions I think we have to ask if we're going to be responsible consumers. Questions like, have we become callous or complacent to these issues? When a new so-called crisis arises, do we actually take it seriously? Or are we conditioned to turn a blind eye, believing that we really can't do anything about it anyway? Are there similarities that exist with the huge biotech corporations of today? By looking at the parallels, we may be able to bring some of the grave issues of the biotech industry into focus and understand the profound effects that are being seen on our planet and in its populations, in us. If we use the past as a guide, we may be able to prevent a human catastrophe in the future, but it requires examination, effort, willingness, and commitment to take action today. So these are some of the things I'd like to address this evening as we continue raising our level of awareness together about the very important topic of genetic engineering and its very real ramifications to our world. It's really very interesting how many older stories have parallels to present-day situations, but one might surprise you, as it did me, and that's the story of Jacob in the Bible, which was written so long ago, but may be one of the closest parallels to the modern-day practices in the biotech industry that we'll find. And just for the record, I'm not making a religious statement in using this example, but the story goes something like this. Jacob comes to be employed as a shepherd under his father-in-law, but instead of receiving wages from his father-in-law, Jacob requests that he give him the black streaked and spotted sheep from the flock, letting the father-in-law then keep all the purely white sheep. And the understanding was that Jacob would keep his small flock separate from his father-in-law's flock, which was an idea both of them agreed to. But then Jacob craftily arranged for the black and spotted sheep of his flock to mate with his father-in-law's white sheep, which then, of course, went on to produce streaked and spotted offspring. Well, since the new sheep were spotted or streaked, they were now considered part of Jacob's flock. 
and he did this knowing that crossbreeding of the sheep would produce more with black and spotted coats. So while his father-in-law's flock remained about the same size, Jacob's was steadily increasing. And Jacob's intent was to grow a large flock and become more powerful than his father-in-law. And as it turned out, his idea worked. He was successful. According to the agreement made, Jacob would own all discolored sheep, and his father-in-law was bound to this agreement. So here we have a simple theme, intentionally interfering with and manipulating nature to gain personal advantage for one's own benefit. Does this sound familiar? Frighteningly so. When you think about it, this is really a remarkable story because it mirrors exactly the biotech industry's business model of today on several levels. One, we have the intentional interference and manipulation of nature. Two, there is an intentional contamination of a pure stock by method of proximity, uh, you know, secretly intermingling the flocks in this case. Three, because of agreements made, the dominant party can legally lay claim to the increases in production numbers taking place. And four, as a result of the manipulation, contamination, and legal agreement, there is a gain in monetary advantage and control by the one perpetrating the whole thing. Now, of course, Jacob wasn't performing gene splicing, but the general outcome was the same, and the general motivation was the same. If we take this story to be an account of an actual event that took place several thousand years ago, what can we conclude? That there seems to be something within human nature that remains unchanged to this day? What do you think? I think it's worth asking. The mentality of seizing opportunity for personal gain, even if it includes deceiving others, is still around today, in full force. And based on Jacob's actions in the Bible, in this story, well, you might even say he'd fit right in at Monsanto. So the idea of human interference with nature, that's nothing new, and is actually the central theme to many science fiction novels and movies as well, usually with outcomes that are unexpected and negative. For example, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, an absolutely amazing story, first published in 1820. It's considered by some to be the start of modern science fiction because unlike previous stories, the central character, being Dr. Frankenstein, makes a deliberate decision and turns to modern experiments in the laboratory to achieve fantastic results. In the story, he works to create life in inanimate objects, ultimately trying to give life to a human form. And even though he is successful in achieving this, things go terribly wrong. And as a result of his actions, the doctor realizes he has created something hideous and potentially dangerous to himself and mankind, but it is too late to reverse what he has done. And the doctor is greatly troubled about what to do as unanticipated ethical issues arise concerning his carelessness and lack of foresight. The monster he created pressures him to make a female version like himself so as not to be alone, but the doctor sabotages the idea thinking it would only make things worse. He's concerned that the monsters would propagate out of control. The monster becomes angry and begins killing members of the doctor's family. And the story ultimately ends with a confrontation between the doctor and his monster, with the doctor dying as a result. Wow, there is a lot of parallel symbolism here. First, we have the scientist who uses technology to manipulate and create life by artificial means. But his creation is not the beautiful, productive wonder that will gain him the notoriety he seeks. Although he achieves part of his goal, there are unanticipated and unforeseen components that were not accounted for. Like the ethical issues of creating life without consideration for the life itself. In this case, the monster was brought about unnaturally in a laboratory and did not have a choice in its own creation. 
The monster's gross characteristics came about not by its own actions, but by the hasty and careless motivations of a selfish scientist looking for his own recognition and glory. Who is to blame in this scenario? Is it right that because someone is in a position of control that their desires rightfully supersede someone else, supersede life and the creation of it? And how about the unforeseen physical threat that was created when the monster was brought to life? The doctor did not consider this until after the fact. This is all really a perfect analogy of what is happening in biotechnology today. Scientists are so caught up in the technology aspect of what they are doing that they are blind to the real effects and implications of their work. They are so motivated by competition, achievement, and profit that concerns for safety are overlooked. In the story, the doctor and his family die as a result of the chain of events he set in motion by his misguided efforts in the laboratory. And as a fitting parallel, the events now set in motion by the biotech corporations of our time as they freely experiment and implement their genetic creations into our food supply will inevitably catch up to us. We may ironically be facing the same fate as a fictional story. And just as a final example before we move on here, The Island of Dr. Moreau, the novel written by H.G. Wells and published in 1896. An Englishman is shipwrecked and transported to an island where a mad scientist, Dr. Moreau, is attempting to create human beings from animals in a series of grotesque experiments. Similar to Frankenstein, we have a scientist here that is manipulating life to achieve very unnatural outcomes, and he is blinded by his own passion in pursuing it. And this story was actually adapted to film, where the character Dr. Moreau interestingly claims to have successfully conquered the impossible, and that is to introduce human DNA into animals, eliminating their basic instincts, thereby creating a supposedly divine human, free from malice and hatred. As the story goes, after many attempts, only one experiment was successful, but the many unsuccessful ones are given drugs every day to keep them from regressing into their animal forms. Interesting, because through all of this, we can draw so many parallels to the biotech industry. In the movie, manipulation of DNA is now in the picture, where the experiments are aimed at improving on humans. The experiments are mostly unsuccessful, and there are unanticipated problems and ramifications as a result. Aside from the clear ethical issues of torture and genetic engineering in the story, the outcomes are dangerous and pose a serious physical threat to others on the island. And the remedy is to use drugs as a patch job solution to the problem. There are really so many parallels between what is happening in this fictional story and what is occurring right now in our non-fiction world. Let's start with the obvious fact that biotech companies are splicing foreign DNA from different animals, including humans, into our food supply right now and on a regular basis. They are doing this to push more GM products and selling it to the public as improving on the quality of life for humans. And while this all sounds very nice, we need to be clear that corporations are not interested in you or me or improving our quality of life, unless it means profit for themselves. Improving our quality of life is a convenient buzz phrase that establishes them as good guys in an advertisement campaign, and really nothing more. And just as in the story where the outcomes to the doctor's bizarre experiments are unsuccessful and have adverse effects, so it is in the biotech industry. They are carrying out the production of their synthetic creations unchecked, 
with no sense of morality or proper safety testing. They do this despite the consistent scientific evidence finding their GM products to be potentially hazardous for human consumption and also negatively impacting key ecosystems. Genetic modification practices present real physical dangers that have serious consequences but amazingly are endorsed by the very regulatory agencies put in place to keep us safe. This is so disturbing, folks. And finally, in the story of Dr. Moreau, when the unsuccessful subjects of the doctor's genetic experiments go awry, he administers more drugs as a solution to the problem, continuing a vicious cycle. And in our nonfiction world, we have parallels there, too. It's unbelievable but problems created by GM technology are solved by introducing even more extreme versions of GM technology. And let me give you an example of that. There's a recent phenomenon known as colony collapse disorder, which is the abrupt disappearance of honeybee populations. And this problem began to appear suddenly on a grand scale in the mid-2000s and has occurred mainly in North America. Is that an unfortunate coincidence? Well, it's speculated by scientists that colony collapse disorder is strongly correlated with the intensified, widespread use of agricultural chemicals and GM crop population over the last decade. So knowing this problem, Monsanto purchased the largest bee research center in the world, Biologics, and instead of changing their chemical and GM practices, proposed to now genetically modify the bees in order to adapt them to the GM environments Monsanto has created. Isn't that something? It's like trying to put a fire out by throwing gasoline on it. You don't solve a problem caused by genetic modification by using more genetic modification. Not to mention, it seems the epitome of a supreme arrogance. Now, we've already talked about some of the many parallels that exist between fictional art and the biotech industry, but how about other parallels? In the face of huge crisis, how do we as informed citizens react? Well, this brings me to a major point I'd like to make, which is we allow ourselves to become conditioned to a state of complacency. The way people seem to react in the face of huge looming crisis is to put our heads in the sand. There seems to be an umbrella of complacency that ultimately takes over, and it tends to happen repeatedly again and again. And one example of this has been the global warming issue. As we know, global warming is the significant increase in the average temperature of Earth's atmosphere and oceans since the late 19th century. Warming of the global climate system is occurring without a doubt, and scientists are more than 90% certain that it is mostly caused by increasing concentrations of greenhouse gases produced by human activities such as the burning of fossil fuels and deforestation. Now these findings are established as hard facts by unbiased scientists from around the world. In fact, they are currently recognized by the National Science Academies of all major industrialized nations. But according to recent Gallup polls surveying 127 countries, it was determined that over a third of the world's population was unaware that global warming even existed, with people in Africa the least aware. In the UK and other countries around the world, there is general recognition and debate on what to do about the problem of global warming. But incredibly, in the United States, there is still great debate about whether it's even happening at all. Do you see where we're going here? Does this sound at all familiar? This phenomenon is an exact parallel to what is happening in our country with the GMO travesty. Why are Americans the ones who seem to be in the dark about these huge global issues when other countries are not? Why can they see so clearly 
what we cannot seem to see at all. Why are we the ones confused about global warming or GMO to the point that we question them even being a problem? The answer comes back to the reality that this country is owned. And yes, we are owned by big money corporations, folks. Like I've talked about before, huge corporations are more concerned about their profits and bottom line than they are about your health. They are concerned more about their profits than, ironically, the world in which even they live and in which their grandchildren will live. Corporate America controls our government, shapes U.S. foreign policy, controls commerce, and controls the media to a very large extent. We in this country know mostly what the corporations want us to know, and they understand that public opinion can be easily confused through misinformation using paid-off scientists, government officials and agencies, news media executives, and anyone else they can buy to favor their reckless business practices. The global warming issue is a world problem, but the big oil companies like Exxon or BP stand to lose profits if we move away from fossil fuels. It's really quite simple, but these corporations have succeeded in confusing the public on an issue as grave and important as global warming, just like biotech corporations are now doing with the hazards of GM practices. These companies know that if they can suspend the public in a state of confusion long enough to where they begin to question actual scientific facts, then mass complacency follows. If enough time passes in a state of complacency, we become blind to what is actually happening around us, to the point that even when we see the evidence with our own eyes, we still will not believe it's happening. We are conditioned to look the other way and bury our heads in the sand. And let me give you an example of this phenomenon. The Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010, also known as the BP oil disaster. This is considered to be the largest accidental marine oil spill in history. It gushed unstopped for three months, discharging an estimated 210 million gallons of oil into the ocean. To give an idea of how much that is, by the time they were able to stop it, it had grown to at least the size of the state of Oklahoma. And the initial response from BP executives was not to address the magnitude of the damage to the environment, but to predictably downplay the incident. The company's CEO at the time, Tony Hayward, called the amount of spilled oil, quote, relatively tiny in comparison with the, quote, very big ocean. And the chief operating officer, Doug Suttles, attempted to semantically confuse the issue by making the defensive statement, quote, it may be down to how you define what a plume is here. The oil that has been found is in very minute quantities, end quote. Can you believe that? Over 200 million gallons of oil gushes into the ocean, and we hear terms like minute quantities? Well, what do we expect? The first thing executives do when caught in a bad situation is to minimize the perception of the magnitude of the problem or deflect and place blame on other factors. This is the MO of huge corporations and is seen time and time again as they routinely sidestep issues like it's a game. On the surface, BP was reprimanded and fined, but after the dust settled, the irreparable damage to the environment still remains to this day. The after-effects of the BP oil spill have been disastrous to many vital ecosystems in the Gulf, and it's still unknown what the long-term permanent effects will be. It wasn't until four years after the 1989 Exxon Valdez oil disaster in Alaska that the herring population there collapsed, and more than 20 years later, it has still not recovered. 
So how do we as a public react to this kind of thing? Well, it's bad news at the time and we pay attention. But do we tend to rationalize that nothing can be done about it anyway, so why bother with it? Do we go onto the Internet and complain and add our two cents, but then really never do anything when we step away from our computers? Maybe we think that others are taking care of things, so we don't really need to. It seems that we tend to become complacent toward many important issues unless we are forced into action out of a necessity or direct threat to ourselves. For instance, if you learned that someone was intentionally or secretly poisoning you and your family, well, how would you react? You would probably take action, probably swiftly and with anger, putting an immediate stop to it. And you'd also probably see to it that the perpetrators were reprimanded. Am I right? This is a natural response. But what about big money corporations that are essentially doing the same thing to us? What is the difference that we should let them get away with it? Well, the difference is in the conditioning of our society. We are brought up to trust in authority and what we read, hear, and see. We tend to think that because others around us may believe one way, it is somehow the truth. So who are we to go against the flow? Unfortunately, it's this kind of thinking that works to the advantage of corporate America. If we are kept in the dark about their questionable practices and how they are directly affecting us, then they can continue on making profit at our expense. So they've gotten pretty good at this. They have it all down to a science, literally. Through the years, they have studied human psychology and behaviors extensively, exploiting this information to manipulate us into complacency, acceptance, and dependence. This is a time-tested approach used by all huge corporations. Take the tobacco industry, for instance. Over the last century, tobacco has evolved into a multi-billion dollar business fueled by an ever-changing arsenal of marketing activities. Tobacco companies have used every trick and tactic in the book, from free giveaways to physician endorsements to promises of magical weight loss and even stooping to targeting and luring our children as future customers. This is all done with the intent to hook the American public on their products, creating a dependence on them. For example, starting in the 1920s, tobacco companies recognized an opportunity in the growing women's rights movement. They embedded themselves in freedom demonstrations and even created cigarettes designed solely for women, like Virginia Slims, among others, which are still popular with female customers to this day. As a result, between 1960 and 1990, lung cancer deaths among women increased by more than 400%, even exceeding breast cancer deaths. But despite all this, in order to counter growing concerns about tobacco-related disease, the industry hired doctors and dentists to endorse their products, using slogans like, just what the doctor ordered, and more doctors smoke camels, and on and on. They would quote statements from studies done by scientists and doctors claiming there were no dangers at all to smoking, and in some cases stating it was actually good for you. It's easy to laugh at these comments now, now that we know better. But at the time, these were statements made by tobacco-supported research, much the same way that statements about the health benefits of consuming GM foods today are made by biotech-supported research. And that is perhaps the scariest parallel of all. In fact, following suit with the tobacco industry, biotech corporations like Monsanto use the same types of methods to fool us into believing a false reality. For instance, Stanford University scientists did a meta-study on organic foods last year, finding them to be essentially the same as standard GM-containing foods. 
But interestingly, some of the people authoring this report are the same people who helped big tobacco companies with their studies. Should this come as any kind of surprise to us? As we talked about in a previous show, Stanford University has deep ties to agricultural biotech corporations like Cargill, who actually boasts a 25-year partnership with Stanford and its faculty, including the School of Medicine there. It's also a well-known fact that several individuals holding influential leadership positions at Stanford University have also served on the board of directors of Monsanto. Mike Adams of Natural News made the following very fitting comment, quote, to say that conventional foods are safe is like saying that cigarettes are safe. Both can be propagandized with fraudulent science funded by corporate donations to universities. And we're seeing the same scientist who helped big tobacco now helping big biotech in their attempt to defraud the public. End quote. So we can see that this has been going on for some time now in corporate America. It's how they operate. To them, the public is something to be persuaded and controlled in order to get what they want. Consider how American presidential campaigns are run, blitzing the public with advertising and speeches, targeting and appealing to different regions of the country, projecting a false sense of concern for specific community needs, all in an attempt to sway public opinion in their favor, working the media, putting spin on arguments to persuade and convince, and so on. This all parallels exactly the approach taken by corporations as they deal with the public. It exemplifies how they use what is scientifically known about human behavior and then manipulate it to their advantage. The fascinating thing is that most of us already know that they do this. We've all witnessed or experienced it to some degree in our lives and even have come to accept it. So why do we continue to tolerate it at our own risk? Well, maybe the tides are turning. Just as in the tobacco industry where the public outcry, along with the mounting preponderance of evidence, showing smoking to be a direct cause to cancer and other health issues. Recently, there have been growing protests against GMO practices, with more farmers standing up to companies like Monsanto and rallying in Washington along with organic food proponents. Change appears to be coming. For example, in response to the failure of Measure 37 in California last November, the health food chain Whole Foods will require labeling of all GMO foods carried in their stores. However, they won't actually be fully implementing this policy until 2018. These companies are also refusing to sell genetically modified salmon. This looks positive, but we can't take our eye off the ball. We can't underestimate the depth of control that big corporations continue to have in our country and our government and countries around the world. And we cannot underestimate our own part in it either. That We have a choice between complacency and action. It is my hope that we will continue to choose action and in growing numbers. So now we'll move on to a special segment of the program called The Listener's Voice, which is where folks out there have kindly taken the time to write into the website with their questions and comments. And to close each show of the program, I'll go through as many as I can. First up, Sue Healy writes into the show. Hello there. I never write into things like this, but something kind of struck me recently as I've been listening to your show and paying more attention to the GMO situation. I wonder how many people actually even know what GM foods are. My husband thinks I'm making a bigger deal out of it than I should be, and I have to admit that it's not what my friends and I talk about either. But do people really know about it? 
I myself started hearing about it years ago, but didn't think twice until more recently when I caught wind of the labeling issues in California. I was just wondering if you had any specific statistics about this. Thanks. Well, hi there, Sue. Thank you very much for your question. I'm so glad you decided to write into the show. Actually, there have been lots of polls taken about the very question you ask. Uh, a very recent one showed that, in fact, very few Americans are paying close attention at all to news about GMO issues. The survey said that 25% of Americans haven't heard anything at all about it, and 48% have heard only very little. Those of us who are, you know, sort of in the know and paying attention account for only about 22% at this point. So looking at this, it's pretty disturbing, isn't it? And it goes back to what I've tried to get at before, and that's that big corporations are intentionally encouraging a complacently, uh, sort of a complacent-minded culture in this country. If they had it their way, nobody would know about this. But the next best thing is to at least sell it to the public, right? And judging from these statistics, it seems that they've been successful so far. But one thing to keep in mind is that polls and surveys fluctuate quite a bit. So even though they're showing one thing now, doesn't mean it's a completely accurate reflection of what's really happening out there or what will be happening out there tomorrow. Um, you know, for example, momentum appears to be taking hold, uh, you know, in groups uh, around the country who are vehemently opposed to the GM food industry. So we have to keep paying attention and encourage awareness about these important issues and and just keep on, you know, spreading that word and doing uh, what each of us can do, whatever that is. Um, so uh, I hope that answers your question. Thanks again for writing in. And next up, Joel Moore writes in and says, how do we expect people to buy organic when the prices are so out of sight? I just spent over 50 bucks on a single sack of groceries at an organic food market in my neighborhood. Well, hi, Joel. Thanks so much for the comment, and you are absolutely right. This has been such a big issue for so many people who are trying to choose a healthy lifestyle and stay away uh, from genetically modified foods. Because it's much cheaper for food companies to produce products with GM ingredients, the prices to the consumer are much lower at this point. And this is the big argument we hear from farmers and food processors saying, you know, in order to maximize their own profits, they are forced to use GM sources, which is because companies like Monsanto have worked very hard to dominate food crops grown by farmers and then force them to use their GM seeds. And in doing this, they've made it much more difficult for organic crops to compete, um, thus driving the prices up in the organic market. Uh, just look at the big oil companies, Joel. You know, uh, since they control the oil, they ultimately control our gas prices, right? It's the same thing with big biotech companies. But the only difference is they're still in the process of gaining control over the food supply. And part of that strategy right now is making their products appear appealing and beneficial uh, and are cheaper. But if these biotech companies gain complete control of the food supply, we would most definitely see a dramatic increase in food costs across the board. Uh, this is how big business works. Hopefully, this will not happen. But unfortunately, in the meantime, consumers are forced to pay higher prices for organic foods, and that's sadly just the way that it is. It's a really sad day that natural, that organic, uh, that untainted, that unmanipulated, um, you know, that organic foods have become a luxury 
and genetically modified foods have become the norm. There is something so incredibly fundamentally wrong with that. Uh, it, it's it's just tragic, to, to say the least. Anyway, thanks again so much for writing into the show with your comment. And with that, I'm afraid I've run out of time in the segment this evening. Uh, if you'd like your question or comment to be featured on the show, I would love to hear from you. Just pay a visit to the website at www.geneticcrossroadradio.com and follow the link to the listener's voice. Once there, just go ahead and fill in the form and send me along your thoughts. I will feature as many as I can during each broadcast. Your voice really does matter and will help make a difference in both the future of our food and our human health. This show is about a conversation, and that's where all change begins. So let's get talking. And I also want to tell you about the Facebook page for the series. If you are enjoying the show and would like to participate in some more interactive communication, I'd absolutely love for you to come and, and give the page a like and join in at www.facebook.com slash Anna Kavanaugh Mad Science Genetic Crossroad. And I'll hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Mad Science, The Genetic Crossroad. Please join me every Tuesday for more on GMO. On next week's show, that's Tuesday, April 2nd, we'll continue our conversation with an episode called The Garden of Eden for Sale. The GMO industry wants to own the genetic blueprints to all existing food sources around the globe. 250,000 farmer suicides in India, forced GMO compliance by European countries by threat of exclusion from the Union, and even the swift impeachment of a South American president and extermination of all native seeds are all frightening glimpses into the overtaking of the world's crops. Henry Kissinger said, Control the oil, control the nation, control the food, control the people. What once was the proverbial Garden of Eden has surreptitiously become the property of an unregulated and untested industry, and consumers are paying the price. I hope you'll join me for next week's broadcast. If we destroy nature, surely nature will destroy us. For while we may hold dominion over nature, we do not possess its wisdom. Until next time, be well. Be healthy and be informed.